0: Cast. Cast. Hello everyone, my name is Earl Brian, and you are listening to the Burden of Command podcast. I'm a former active duty United States Marine with over 25 years of coaching and mentoring experience across the military, civilian, federal service, and private sectors. I'm a lifelong learning enthusiast when it comes to leadership, and this podcast is just an extension of that pursuit. My goal with each episode will be to bring you great content for leaders across all spectrums of the word leadership. Leadership is a complicated venture. You are dealing with complex people, on complex teams, in complex organizations, and complex situations. You have to know how to interact with each one of these elements in the appropriate way, at the appropriate time, in order to achieve success. Lead your team well and it's a glorious thing. Fell in any one aspect and it will be disastrous. This, dear listener, is the Burden of Command. All right, listeners, welcome to this episode of the Burden of Command podcast. Today's guest is a very special guest, Colonel Lee Ellis, Air Force, retired. Colonel Ellis is president of Leadership Freedom LLC, which is a leadership and team development consulting and coaching company. Lee Ellis consults with Fortune 500 senior executives in the areas of hiring, team building, human performance, and succession planning. His media appearances include interviews on networks such as CNN, CBS This Morning, C-SPAN, ABC World News, and Fox News Channel. He is an accomplished author, having written two very great books, one, Leading with Honor, Leadership Lessons from the Hanoi Hilton, and Engage with Honor, Building a Culture of Courageous Accountability. If you'd like to learn more about Colonel Ellis and what he's doing, you can find him on the internet at www.leadingwithhonoralloneword.com. Colonel Ellis, thank you very much for your service, and thank you for being here today.
1: Well, thank you, Earl. Good morning. Good to be with you, and hope you're having a great day.
0: I'm having a fantastic day. And uh, just to get things rolling, I'm going to ask you the question I lead off with all my guests. The term burden of command, what does that mean to you?
1: Yes, that's a good question, because it is so encompassing, it can be scary at times. But I think it's the price of leadership is that you have to own it. You have to own it, one, to on all the pieces, the people and the mission, you got to accomplish the mission, but you also have to take care of the people for lots of reasons. One, it's the right thing to do. And two, they're the ones that are doing the work. And the better that they're working and feeling about their work, the more successful they're going to work and the better your organization and mission is going to be. Uh, I think the first word is ownership. You've got to see it that you own it. And that means that you have to accomplish the mission but you should also plan to leave it in a better condition than you found it. In today's changing world, that can be challenging because sometimes just surviving day-to-day with the changes that are coming at us so rapidly, uh, it puts us all in a a scrambling mode. And uh, we have to be able to get into the scrambling mode to keep up, but we also at the same time have to be executing the day-to-day plan and then we also probably have to be maintaining some stuff from the past, too. So a lot going on there for the leader.
0: Well, and that's good. And that's the reason why I ask the question the way I do is, like you said, burden of command It's something that's uh, it's going to mean a lot to a lot of different people. And, and I'm glad to hear, uh, hear your definition with your unique experiences. Uh, you know, for the listeners who aren't familiar uh, with Colonel Ellis, uh, he was one of the uh, POWs in the Hanoi Hilton uh, during the Vietnam War. And so you've had a very, uh, very intimate firsthand experience with leadership in tough times, right?
1: Yes, I did. Now, the th- thing you got to understand is I learned so much uh, by observation and experience of great leaders because I was never the leader. I was the junior ranking guy in the camp, uh, or not a camp, but in the uh, cell block and pretty much in the camp. Some camps I was a junior guy um, and the youngest guy. There were maybe one or two guys that within three or four months of me that might have been three much younger than me. But otherwise, uh, I was the youngest guy in the camp and junior ranking. So what I learned was uh, from others uh, how they led, what, what they faced. You're talking about the burden of command. They were being tortured. They were being beaten. They were put in isolation much more often than anyone else. And yet they kept on leading and stayed true to their values. They bounced back. Uh, they were beaten down, but they bounced back and kept on leading to accomplish the mission of resisting the enemy and returning with honor.
0: And you, okay, so you just said those three words there that, you know, people talk a lot about vision statements and goal setting, but return mm-hmm. with honor. Uh, you know, from everything I've read, that was sort of your the the and when I say your, I'm talking about everyone that was in in the camp. That was sort of their foundational mantra, right? Return yes. with honor.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It started out as, and this was really you could put it our mission, our vision, and our values. But it started out resist, survive, return with honor. And then over the years, just the resisting and surviving became so uh, so daily that then it just kind of fell into return with honor because we knew that that to re, to return with honor we had to resist we had to survive. So it all boiled down our mission, our vision, our values because we definitely want to go home, but with honor. And so that was uh, that was crucial for our situation.
0: Now, one of the things that that uh, my business partner and I talk about when we come into an organization uh, is the, the the sense of belonging. The more people feel mm-hmm. like they belong, uh, mm-hmm. the more successful the organization is. Yeah. And, and a lot of people look at us like, okay, that's touchy feely, fluffy type stuff. We we want to move on, but that sense of belonging was very much a, a cornerstone of surviving uh, in the Hilton, right?
1: Yeah. Yes, it was. Uh, Connection. I write a lot about that now. I've done several blogs on that this year already. Uh, but I have a chapter in the Engage with Honor book called two chapters. One is connecting based on personality. you got to manage people differently based on their natural behavior, style and their talent. So you manage Lee Ellis with a two by four upside the head or you won't <laughs> even get his attention. You manage Mary Ellis, his wife, with some kind words and give her some written instructions. And that works great. Of course, she doesn't uh, conquer the mountain like I do. You know, she, she I'm going to go through it, around it, over it somehow. Uh, we're different personalities, and so we have different talents, different work. The other connection, though, is connection with the heart, and I think that's what you're talking about here. And it's so crucial. Uh, we did have those kind of connections in the Hilton. For one thing, you know, when you're alone in a POW camp and they're threatening you with war crimes, trials, and you may never go home, connection is so important. And to be connected with another human being who's friendly to you and who's not operating as a communist uh, enemy uh, was so important, so important that we, uh, our bond, you know, crisis makes you bond with people who are on your side. And we certainly did bond that way. The thing that I see, uh, and you mentioned the word touchy-feely, here's what we know. Forty percent of the population is born results-oriented, mission-focused. 40% of the world is born relationship-oriented, people-focused. And so to be a great leader, though, you have to do both. Because if you don't connect with your people, if you don't relate to your people, if you don't listen to your people, if you don't affirm your people, their performance, their energy at work goes down. And some people think, well, it's a transaction. I pay you and you should come to work and do your best. Well, that's true. But the other part of that is human beings are complex. We're, we have emotions. We have feelings. We have desires that uh, we want to be special. We want to accomplish some. We want to have a purpose. We want to know that what we're doing counts. And if our leader doesn't connect with us and let us know those kind of things, the energy is just not quite, not ever the same. Uh, the the ingenuity is not the same because there's no energy to solve the problems and make things better because they don't care anyway. My boss doesn't care as long as I show up and do my job. He doesn't care, but that connection with the heart, uh, which is the things would be things that go with that would be listening, encouraging, affirming, giving positive feedback, giving critiques that help them develop, correcting them, of course. Coaching them where they need help, supporting them when they have obstacles that are above their pay grade, all those kind of things let them know that you're very important to this organization, you're very important to me. And that brings in your, into your fold a committed, engaged employee. If you look at Gallup's research, so a higher percentage of the employees in America and around the world today are not fully engaged. Uh about 20% are fully engaged and about 20% engaged. And then there's about 50% that are not much engaged. And so, you know, as a leader, you got to own that, you know, that's your issue. And so how do you get them engaged? And the best way is for them to know that you care about them. That's the most important thing. It sounds touchy-feely, but here's a good, the good news for all the results oriented people who think it's touchy-feely, it's going to get you better results, make you more money, and it's going to make a happier workplace for everybody. So, uh, hitch up your boots and go out and learn to affirm people. Learn to connect with people. Uh, you know, I coach people this on this every day. Of course, I have to coach relationship people on how to be tough too.
0: <laughs> well, right, <laughs> you, you you need both, right? And, and that. Uh, so I love yeah. uh, between the two books. Uh, there's a lot of uh, there, there's a lot of words dedicated uh to Admiral Stockdale and how he kind of did everything you just talked about you know he was tough when he yeah. needed to be tough he sacrificed mm-hmm. when he needed to be sa- uh, be sacrificial uh one of my favorite stories that has been told of him was uh, the one where the uh the guard caught uh, caught one of of the fellow inmates uh, you know doing using your knocking system and 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 if I understood the story right, when he come barging in the door like like uh Stockdale hit him to to take him off of his uh off of his cellmate, right?
1: Yeah, I think I've heard that story too. Yeah. So he was uh he was just a great guy, very courageous and amazing courage. Uh but you know, at the end he said the most important thing I learned in my POW experience is that we are our brother's keeper.
0: Mm. Yeah. And 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 I I like that cuz the uh you know reading up on him and and how he was a student of the stoics and and he's got one mm-hmm. uh the epictetus says uh, men are not disturbed by things but the view of which they take of them. And mm-hmm. and and I thought that was such a powerful quote to have in that environment because uh you know hearing you know reading all of the stories of you know you'd be locked in the small cell with someone for weeks at a time and you know they may have like just this nervous tick or whatever that's driving you crazy but that's their coping mechanism and, and you have to learn how to deal with that because that's how they're dealing with their situation
1: um,
0: and, and that is critical Yeah, I think it was
1: uh I was go ahead yeah
0: no I'm sorry I was gonna say I think that's critical because we have a lot of that going on in our organizations today and and we don't have that that grace <laughs> to deal with it
1: yeah well, uh, I'm just coming out with a new book. Uh, it'll be out next fall. We're just finishing it up right now, but, it, you know, has to go through a process once it gets finished. So, uh, but it's, uh, it's a, about behavior. leadership. It's a, based around our leadership behavior DNA assessment. And a big focus of that is learning to manage differences and relate to differences because, uh, you know, somebody who's very detailed and picky can drive you nuts. Because they're detailed and picky about everything that's their str their strength is they're very detailed and they get it right and they do the things that make er uh, you know when I'm flying from uh, the us to Hong Kong or the us to Singapore or or Japan not direct Singapore we go fly from Atlanta to Narita in Tokyo you know that's a 14 hour flight. Mm-hmm. Those engines over the ocean, man, those engines are turning perfectly for hours and hours and hours, that whole airplane. And I'm so thankful for those people that are detailed and accurate and get it right. Right. <laughs> but some of those people, if, you, if you're if around them all the time, you yeah, know, they can drive me nuts. But the other side of that is I'm emotional, I'm loud, I'm talkative. Uh, I say about half the things that go through my mind come out of my mouth. <laughs> and uh, I mean, I have to work it throttling that back say so i'm aware of that, but i can drive them nuts so that's the whole idea of working together and in the pow camp we had to learn to accept someone as they were value their strengths and look over their struggles just overlook them because you're not going to make them change they can they can work on it like i'm working on some of mine but i'll always be working on them and i'll never get perfect uh, compared to them you know what i mean Oh uh, yeah, I mean I can identify. I'm I'm loud and country too, and uh,
0: you know I was raised by my grandfather uh, who was a World War II veteran, uh, jumped out of planes over the European theater, and as he always said, he was deaf in one ear and couldn't hear out of the other one. So growing up with him, my normal speaking voice is like, why are you shouting at me to other people? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and so you're right, I have to. I almost have to feel like I'm whispering to talk at a normal tone to, to most people. Mm-hmm. So, but, but I like yeah. that, what you just said there about, you know, being aware and, and working on it, you know, and that's the, that's the key factor when, when we're talking to organizations is the number one thing that you can do to fix, you know, whether we're talking about uh, unconscious bias, whether it's racial sexual harassment issues in organization is be aware of the cause and be willing to fix it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, I uh, you know, there's certain things that you just got to shut down and shut down quickly. And, and the way you do that, you got a mindset, let's say. <clears throat> and, I, you know, I'll take my parents. You know, I grew up in segregation days, but we were always around uh, black people. And some of them were our closest friends. We loved them. But, the culture was segregated, and so that's what they knew. and that's kind of what I knew until I got to, you know got to college. But once we saw the light, so to speak, we flipped the switch uh, because we'd always loved them. So it wasn't any problem loving black people. <laughs> it was just to flip the switch on the, the social, uh, cultural things. We flipped that switch uh, and we knew it was right, and we did it and we did it quickly that's a mindset. A mindset, uh, you can turn those around uh, pretty quickly sometimes. And natural behavior though, like being detailed and organized and picky, uh, those things are kind of built into your DNA and your brain. And so you're always coaching yourself on those. Uh, And so what we like to do is uh, help people learn to self-coach you know learn that once you become self-aware you can self-coach and you have to do that with some of those mindsets too because they'll keep popping up and you have to just say wait a minute i've i've shut you down over there that's not the way i see the world anymore
0: yeah well and and two you know there's that uh that piece of finding putting people in the right place to succeed you know that detail-oriented person um you want them on detail-oriented tasks right uh yeah so um I'm not sure. Uh, have you ever read the Book of Five Rings? A what? Uh, it's it's called the Book of Five Rings. Uh, it's it's a Japanese uh, text, but oh, th- th- I haven't there's... read. I've
1: read the Five Voices. Oh,
0: I haven't read that one. So there we go. We'll have to. Okay.
1: <laughs> but no. Well, the they're book... good. They're they're good, but they're not going to be as good as ours. is coming out. Well, no, and that's good. I'm, 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 kidding.
0: I'm. Oh, hey, no. I mean, I'm, <laughs> I'm looking forward to it. I. I uh, I got to get caught up with engage with honor, especially knowing that you've got another one coming out. But yeah, you know, in the book of five rings, there, there's one of the books, it's, it's talking about uh, the way of the master carpenter. And, uh-huh. and in this way of the master carpenter, he says, what sets a master carpenter apart is being able to look at all the different pieces of wood and know how to use them. Some woods are mm-hmm. perfect for the beams. Some woods are perfect for the mantles. Uh, some woods are perfect for nothing more than being the campfire at night.
1: Yeah. If yeah. you
0: know how to use them, you are you can be a master carpenter. And I, uh, I read that, and I thought, this is the same thing with people. And I think this is what you're saying here is when you know your people and know how to use them, that's what sets apart a entry-level leader from a master-level leader.
1: No question about it. And, you know, I think the book that you've read, I tell the story of the time when I put the wrong guy in charge of United Way. In the Air Force, it was called a combined federal campaign, but it was like the United Way, Mm -hmm. part of the United Way. And uh, I put the wrong guy in charge. I put a guy who was, uh, you know, more of an engineer than a salesman. They were both really good instructor pilots for me. So they both were good pilots. They were both top-notch pilots. But the first one I put was like an engineer and he wasn't a promoter or a sales guy. And so we didn't do very well. I I go to stand up briefing it every week and they show the, um, you know, the, 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 the uh, temperature gauge going up with how much money your group had raised, you know, and you're supposed to go out the top. We never got to the top in my unit that year. And I was so embarrassed and I realized I picked the wrong guy. He's a really good guy, but I, he wasn't a salesman. So the next year, I picked a guy who was much more of a promotional guy and we, we blew it out very quickly. Just, and that was my big lesson of how, you know, both guys were great instructor pilots, but they sure were not good salesmen. One of them was, one of them wasn't. Right. And it just made a world of difference. I mean, like you said, two great guys. absolutely. Yeah. So, and then I've helped companies when hiring uh, for sales organizations and, and IT organizations over the years. And, you know, they're they're just certain qualities that you about 80 to 90 percent of the time you have to have those qualities. There are few people that are good salespeople without those. They do it a systematic way. But most of the time, you know, they're pretty outgoing and spontaneous and all that sort of stuff.
0: So full disclosure, uh, you know, I've quoted your book quite a bit in, in some of the training that we've done. I've, I have encourage people to pick it up. I think it's a great uh, mm-hmm. uh, leading with honor. I think it's a great book. Um uh, but, but the whole experience, right? The, just the the kind of laboratory, if you will, that that y'all were in in that experience, it seems to have generated. It's some of the country's best leaders. I mean, your, your forward for leading with honor was written by the late great John McCain, um, mm-hmm. and and it always intrigues me when I start talking about the things that worked in that environment. I I hear, yeah, but that's not going to work here. How do you answer, if you run into that, how do you overcome that when people think, sure, it can work in a a prison in the middle of Vietnam, but it's not Mm going to work in my cushy, comfortable corporate world?
1: Well, true principles, uh, yeah, true principles work everywhere. They work at home, in your family life. They work at work. They work in a POW camp. So listening uh, to others before you make important decisions, getting good feedback, getting everybody's input. Man, that works. The POW leaders, you know, they wanted. They'd never been POW leaders before, and they wanted, if they could talk to somebody, they wanted to vet their ideas with them because they knew there might be something that they weren't seeing that their their angle on the on the situation was not complete. So they were they they welcomed uh, input. And good leaders welcome input. I've seen a lot of leaders, though, the bad ones, man, they don't want anybody to speak up because they're afraid they'll say something different than what they want to do, and then they got a problem. See, they don't have the courage to adjust. Courage. You think about courage. Everything in leadership, every leadership principle is centered on courage because you can have all the principles in the world. But if you don't have courage to go do them, uh, they won't get you anywhere. So commitment character. Those are going to be very important. People are watching you. Can I trust you? Do you do what you say you'll do? Do you follow up? Do you let good people go, uh, bad people, uh, people who either have bad behavior or bad performance? Are you not dealing with that? Well, in the POW camp, you have to deal with that, but you have to deal with it in every organization. If you don't, you're going to lose respect and you're going to have people on the payroll that are not carrying their load and everybody's going to wonder when the boss is going to wake up and uh, do his job, so to speak. So on and on, whatever it is, uh, it's building a culture. Oh, man, culture was everything. The culture that our senior leaders built for us, uh, very simple, very powerful. We did not have to have a manager standing over us telling us what to do because we knew what our job was. It was to resist the enemy, to follow the code of conduct, and return with honor. And that was broad guidelines, but it was more than enough to keep our behavior. Uh, everybody was doing its best to do that. And if we did that, then whatever it looked like was going to be good. It may look different one day than the next with one person or the next. But when, you know, they're beating on you, uh, some people are tougher than others. And that's just we came to understand that as a reality. So we knew we were doing our best and the people who weren't, we also knew who those were, the people. The very, very few people collaborated, but we knew about that too. So, you know, whether it's accountability, whether it's building your culture, where it's a building a good team and uh, getting the right people, as Jim Collins talks about in Good to Great, getting the right people not only on the bus, but in the right seat on the bus. You can have a great person, but if they're in the wrong job, that's not going to work. you got to go look at their talents, their experience, Everything that, um, you know, there are 14 lessons in leading with honor, and every one of those is applied right here in the workplace every day. Uh, Developing your people, huge. We we had classes, and we learned languages and math uh, sitting in those cells with no pencil and paper, but we did it in our head and writing on the floor, concrete slab floor with a piece of broken brick tile off the roof, with our chalk and we could work out. Uh, I learned differential calculus there uh, from a guy from the Naval Academy who was, ultimately came home after the war and was the uh, dean of the math department at the Naval Academy. So, you know, there's plenty of talent around and developing those talents is so important developing your people. So I could go on and on, but you get the idea that a principle like that of developing your people, of building a cohesive team of clarifying Overcommunicating the message, you have to overcommunicate it. Well, we fought to communicate because they wouldn't let us communicate. So we had to. We had tap codes. We had all sorts of codes, hand codes. But we had to communicate. And you, as a leader, you can't just go in your office and shut the door and think that everybody knows uh, what they need to be doing and what the mission, vision, and values is, or what the commander's intent is. Those kind of things, you got to make sure people understand. And you clarify what your expectations are and what the standards are. But then you also had to celebrate. And that's another key principle that a lot of results-oriented leaders, they don't see the need to celebrate. I've had them tell me, hey, man, we celebrate. They'll, they'll slow down. I, I don't want to celebrate. <laughs> well, that's just stupid because good people do need to celebrate a victory. And now they're fired up to go after another one, you know?
0: Right. Yeah, no, I mean, capturing that momentum, I mean, and, and you you said, you know, I mean, you said a lot there, and, and it's so much value, and thank you for that that answer, and, uh, you know, I mean, I keep thinking about all these, there's all these stories from the books that I want to reference, but I don't want to give too much of it away, because I really want to encourage anybody who hasn't, go get your books, uh, I'll have links to those in the show notes, but but the the overall theme, you know, you, you mentioned some of, the, uh, some of the beatings and, and torture, and and one thing that intrigued me, and this is this is what I'm talking. I, I probably the point I referenced the most is, uh, you know, I, I've read different studies that show like the general uh, population from Vietnam veterans, the PTSD rate was somewhere between thirty to forty percent, uh, but for the POWs, it was down into three to four percent range. And, and a lot mm-hmm. of that has been attributed to everything you just talked about—that sense of belongingness, that that keeping your mind sharp, the positive mental attitude. And yet again, organizations today, they just kind of, well, you know, we, we're worried about the bottom line. We don't have time to, to, to put into these programs. But because you all invested that time in the communication, the reaching out, making everybody feel like they belong, it it had such a drastic impact on the final outcome of the you know situation you all were in. Mm-hmm. And, and by a lot of accounts, uh, as crazy as the situation was, set you all up for a lifetime of success. I mean, obviously not everybody achieved the same level of success, but, you know, people like you, again, Senator McCain, and there's, uh, you know, other senators and congressmen and, and Fortune 500 executives that came out of that relatively small pool better off in some cases, obviously not physically because of the things that you went through but mentally tough, and that is critical, right?
1: Yeah, it is. Um, you know, there's several pieces in that. Um, one is we had the discipline, we had the, um, we had the culture that says we are going to fight and win. We're not giving up, we're going to fight and win, and we were a very competitive group of people. Also, uh, we were older Older than Korean War POWs, much older, and older than your typical uh, soldier in Vietnam. The average age of the POWs was 30 and a half. I went in, I just turned 24, so I'm the kid on the block. Most of the people were five or six years older than me. And uh, so that made it, you know, older people are more stable, more secure. They've been through some life issues. They didn't just leave home and go go in the military. The other thing is we stayed with our group. And because the American people put so much pressure on the communists about our treatment, they when Ho Chi Minh died in the fall of sixty nine, which I'd been there two years then, and in a few months they stopped the new leadership stopped the torture. So we had about three years, two to three years, where it was more live and let live. And we had time to be decompress and time with people who had been through worse than we had. I live with guys that had been there seven, seven and a half. One guy was there right at eight years. So there was always somebody who had suffered more nearby to to decompress and talk with it. And we knew we had to get ready. So in those two years, we started getting rid of our bitterness and our anger, getting ourselves ready to go home. Well, these guys today, you know, they're fighting a war, and they get on an airplane fly home, and the next day they're having lunch and dinner with their family who knows nothing about what they've been through, knows nothing about their buddies. They're separated from their unit then, and they go back into the civilian world, and, and they are back even to a military world where they don't they don't have that same sense of belonging. And so it's, uh, it's, the PTSD is quite a bit higher. Ours is like 4%, and the average otherwise for been people who have been to more than three deployments, it's up around 30 40%. So we had a different situation there, being older and uh, that strong bond and then having the two years to decompress. Even World War II, they put them on boats for months, you know, shipping them back home. It gave them time to decompress some and get ready to go home, but they still had a good bit. So there are a lot of pieces to that, but I think uh, our strong bond and we we continue to meet and have reunions. uh, The... the, uh, Older age and then the time to decompress—I'd say was the, the real issues there for us.
0: Well, it's uh, so it's almost like you were reading my mind. Cause uh, are, are you familiar with uh, Lieutenant Colonel David Grossman and, and his work?
1: Uh, yes, I think so. Right. Um, he he uh,
0: he wrote a book on killing, and and you you almost cited it verbatim as, as some of the hmm. conclusions he came to with the decompression. Uh, the, the staying with your unit uh, and some of the things that have led to modern PTSD rates being so high, even though comparatively speaking, you know, war is always going to be hell. But comparatively speaking, the way we fight war today should, by most uh, psychologists' accounts, be less psychologically traumatic than, you know, World War I, World War II, mm-hmm. and even through yeah. Vietnam. But it, all the same things. And that was going to be, you, you segue nicely into uh, one of my next questions. Um, you know, as, as we have more veterans coming from the global war on terror, uh, trying to reintegrate back into society, what can an organization do uh, to, to help that transition from their standpoint?
1: I think you want to bring them in and get them into the team where they feel part of the team. Cause they're, you know, they've lost their team so to speak and bring them in and spend some time helping them get to know people and feel like they're part of the team because that, that community, there's nothing better than community. Whether you're trying to grow in yourself and leadership, you really need to be involved in community, whether you're in, you know, the 12 step program community, most everything, um, uh, Old people that are in community live longer than people who are living alone. So community is very important. Get them in there and help them to feel uh, valued. Give them a sense of purpose because in the military, you had a sense of purpose of what our job was and we were serving and something bigger than yourself. Those kind of things are very, very important to get them engaged. And uh, don't let them hang out. The worst thing you can do is have people in the organization that are not connected. So the immediate supervisor always needs to be connected to their people. That was another big mistake I made once. I had a guy who was broke his leg and couldn't fly. And after a few weeks and crutch, a couple of weeks on crutches, his boss was kind of let him go home and not come to work. And, uh, we lost connection with him and he was already probably, we didn't know this, getting into drugs, but, uh, I learned that he was actually selling drugs and uh, he, I ended up sending him to Leavenworth mm. and I felt like uh, it might've happened anyway, but we, me and his supervisor, uh, we should have demanded him stay in connected in a much better way. We should have made him do something every day. And so I learned a lesson. Don't let people be around and not be connected to the unit because that's, uh, you need to know what's going on with them.
0: Yeah, and I think that's valuable advice, you know, having some friends who work for different organizations that uh, help companies uh, recruit and, and hire uh, veterans. That's the number one complaint is you, you have a lot of organizations out there that they want to do the right thing, they want to help, and so they put on a campaign to hire veterans, but then once they get there, they don't know how to utilize them, and and that mm-hmm. sense of purpose yeah. is, is critical. Uh, yeah.
1: Yeah. One other, let me say one other thing about the society today. It's a very different society. I was the youngest guy there, but I grew up plowing mules and farm and feeding the hogs and chopping the wood. And I was part of the economic, family economic system. We worked whether it was hot or cold. I worked all day long every summer on the fields, either there in the peach packing shed. Uh, We grew up understanding hardship. Uh, you know, I raised and fed a 4-H club hog and then shot it and dressed it and killed it and ate it. Uh These kids growing up today, they just haven't lived in that kind of world uh where you did those kind of things. And I think those kind of things makes you more resilient because we had responsibility at, you know, a 10-year-old had a lot of responsibility back then. And today is, you know, a 20-year-old has virtually no responsibility today for the most part, most young people. And if they do, somebody does try to make them accountable, a 15-year-old high school student, their parents come down and raise hell with a school, you know. So <laughs> it's a tough world. These young kids, uh, the, the culture and the parenting that goes on today, uh, there's a lot of good about it, but there's a lot of um, stuff that it really inhibits the... Uh, Inner confidence and resilience of young people today. I
0: I agree. You know, I mean, again, as we were talking beforehand, uh, you know, I served in peacetime, but the the whole, uh, the whole foundation of Marine Corps boot camp is to get you comfortable being uncomfortable. Exactly. And, uh, and, and yep. that is, uh, yeah, it's 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 a great mindset to have, and I think it's it's you're right. Uh, it's something that a lot of folks are deprived of because of the social and economic advances our country has had that that that's just not there anymore and that's a great point to make so thank you for making it Uh, well sir we're coming up on uh you know about 35 minutes or so here and i know you're uh you're a busy man and your time is very valuable so um just working to wrap it up i always like to ask this question last is there anything that we haven't covered that you would like to share with the audience
1: yeah, I had one more thing that we kind of almost touched on, but it goes back to your opening question about the burden of leadership. Mm-hmm. Um, I keep a list because I think the challenge of leadership is understanding what's expected and being able to reconcile yourself to it. So the paradox of leadership, you have to be a generalist and see the big picture, but you need to be a specialist. You have to be a visionary, but you have to be practical. You have to be strategic, but tactical. You have to be confident, but humble. You have to be detached at times, yet you have to be sensitive to others. You have to be tough, yet compassionate. You have to have strong opinions, but you have to be a good listener. Man, those really, these things don't go together. I mean, this is like walking both sides of the street at the same time. You have to be bold and cautious, quick and patient, independent and a team player. I mean, it just goes on and on. You have to be able to Live in chaos, and you have to bring order. Uh, you have to be serious. You it's fun. I mean, it just you see the you see the challenge of why leadership is a burden. And for some people, you know, they don't want that. Okay, I get it. I had a guy tell me the other day. He said. Um, He said, I don't want to I don't want to be a manager because I don't want to deal with all the people stuff. And I said, you're a wise man. If that's what you know, you're very wise if you don't want to deal with it. Because as a leader, you got to deal with all these things of being tough, being kind and loving people, but being detached when you need to to send them to Leavenworth if you have to. Leavenworth's a federal prison for those that don't know.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's that's where they say you turn big rocks into little rocks. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> a little, that's right. That's <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, well, so, no, that is great. And, and you know, that was, you know, again, serving in peacetime, people always ask me, what is the one thing that that worried you as a Marine? And I said, you know, and it shocks a lot of people, and I, I love it because it ties in with what you, you were saying, is everybody's got this uh, image, especially of the Marines, uh, that, that uh, of Gunny Hartman going up and down and just yelling and screaming. And that's what Marine Corps mm-hmm. leadership is like. And, uh, you know, they, they tell you that, no, <laughs> once you get into real leadership, it's like you have to love your teammates so mm-hmm. much that you'll do anything to protect them, but you still have to be willing to put them in harm's way to get the mission done.
1: Yep, exactly.
0: And and it's just, yeah. And that was, again, thankfully, that was not something I ever had to face, but it, it was something that they prepared you for uh, and, and people yeah. don't associate military leadership and love, but, but you do, you learn to love those guys more than your own flesh and blood in a lot of instances.
1: Yeah. You know, I've read, uh, um, one of my friends a retired Marine Colonel who served in Vietnam and he talked in his book, he talks about his, uh, he had a, PFC or corporal, who, who, he said the best point man I ever had. And, uh, he said, you know, the, the leader can't always walk point, And so you have to have point people, somebody, and you take turns, but he said, this guy wanted it and he was good at it. And he said, you know, we loved him like, you know, but we loved all our people. And I think the Marines actually do the best job of really listening to and respecting their enlisted guys, Marine officers too. I think they learned that well. I think it's a uh, it's a concern I have had at times from some of the other services where they didn't really deeply care about their enlisted men uh, as much as the Marines do. I think they set a good example of that.
0: Well, appreciate it, and that's a that's a good note to to end on. So, Colonel, thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate it, and uh, we'll have links to all of your information, uh, the books you have out now. Uh, what was the title of your
1: your book coming up? Well, we're still negotiating that, but it's uh, Leadership Behavior DNA, uh, Understanding Talents, Managing Differences. Okay. and uh, if, Pretty close. Uh, you know, leadership Behavior, we have an assessment called Leadership Behavior DNA, and it points out your strengths and your struggles in each of eight factors. And so the book is about that, but it's also about how to actually use that information to manage and lead differences
0: okay well no that's good we'll keep an eye out for that one and uh, and and again thank you for your time and for our listeners Uh, I'll have again I'll have all these notes uh, in the show notes so you can access these and I highly encourage you uh, reading those books and uh, interacting with Colonel Ellis on social media we'll have some of that contact info there he's very active on LinkedIn Uh, and with that listeners thank you for your time All right, thanks for tuning in. If you have any comments or questions for me or my guest, or you would like to suggest a future guest, send them to me at at gmail.com. Be sure to rate and review us on your podcast platform of choice. I'll look forward to speaking with you again in the next episode. Welcome to Ringside with Ray and Prince. My name is Ray Leonard Jr. my name is Prince Daniels
1: Jr. Daniels again with a big
0: hole Touchdown! On this show, we come to humanize...
1: Athletes, entertainers, business executives. We're going to see what makes them hit Tuesdays,
0: 10 a.m. Pacific time. On Spotify, Apple, Amazon, and wherever you get your podcast. We'll see you there. Peace and power. Electric Ass.